This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio Program. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you're listening in today. Joining me in segments two and three of today's program is returning guest, Mr. Larry Reed. Larry is the president emeritus of the organization Foundation for Economic Education. It's an organization that uh, I admire very much. And Larry's going to give us some historical examples that parallel really uh, where we are today. So I know you're going to appreciate Larry's perspective. And again, he'll be joining me in segments two and three of today's program. Hey, if you are aspiring to a comfortable, stress-free retirement, I would invite you to get a copy of my book, Revenue Sourcing. This was released uh, in the spring of 2020, and it contains a retirement planning strategy for the post-pandemic economy. The world has changed and continues to change, and the Revenue Sourcing book was written to give you a strategy to consider for your own personal financial situation to help you reach your retirement goals. To get a copy of the book, all you need to do is go to the website, myrevenuesourcingbook.com. The website, again, is myrevenuesourcingbook.com, and I'll be glad to send you a complimentary copy as well as some bonus information. Well, there is a lot of tax talk going on in Washington, D.C. presently. Uh, The politicians are collectively spending a fair amount of time trying to figure out whose taxes to raise and by how much. And I read an article this past week authored by Simon Black that did a good job of outlining some of the proposals that were have been floating around and are still being considered. And I thought in this segment, uh, I would cover some of those proposals with you. One proposal that's floating around would forbid individual retirement accounts, IRAs, from making non-traditional investments like startups in businesses, private placements, and even certain cryptocurrency investments. Now, as Mr. Black points out, this is really bizarre when you stop and consider it. The politicians who came up with this idea, at least ostensibly, love to dump all over Wall Street. Yet, by taking away the ability for IRAs to buy private assets, Americans would be forced to invest all their retirement funds with the very same Wall Street banks that many of these politicians claim to hate. Now, there are also some other proposals that are being considered that are just downright crazy. One of these proposals is uh, a wealth tax, and I want to give you just the background uh, as Mr. Black lays it out uh, prior to talking about this wealth tax that's being proposed. There is also a proposal to increase capital gains taxes. Now, the U.S. government has an almost unblemished historical track record in that every time they raise capital gains taxes, capital gains tax revenue has actually fallen. In the late 1960s, as an example, the federal government significantly raised capital gains tax rates, yet capital gains tax revenue fell significantly. Let's look at the numbers. In 1967, before the law was passed that increased capital gains taxes, 
Total capital gains tax revenue was $4.1 billion. Three years later, even though tax rates were higher, tax revenue had fallen about 25% to about $3 billion. Now, the same thing happened in the late 80s. History repeated itself. Capital gains tax rates were increased from 20% to 28%, and, predictably, capital gains tax revenue fell. Capital gains tax revenues in 1986 were $52 billion annually. That dropped to $35 billion again just three years later in 1989, and by 1991 had dropped by more than half to just $24 billion. Now here's the irony. One of the proposals floating around would increase capital gains taxes from 20%, which is the top rate presently, to 28%. Now, there is an Obamacare surtax of 3.8% that can apply also, depending on the level of income one has. So what's being discussed, and at least one of these proposals, is a repeat of 1987 all over again. The top capital gains tax rate would go from 20% to 28%, and one would have to assume that capital gains tax revenues will fall. Now, if you're listening to this, you're probably wondering, why do they fall? Well, the answer is simple. If you change capital gains tax rates, investors change their behavior. No one eagerly pays taxes if they have an option not to. And historically speaking, there has always been a way to beat increases in the capital gains tax. Now, Puerto Rico is one option. U.S. citizens who live in Puerto Rico are subject to 0% tax on qualifying capital gains. They pay no Puerto Rican tax, and they're not subject to U.S. federal income tax either. Now, if you don't want to move to Puerto Rico... You could just choose not to sell. If you have real estate, cryptocurrency, stocks, uh, you could maybe post those assets as collateral and just take out a loan for the money you need because interest on the loan is going to be far cheaper than paying capital gains taxes. There are a number of discount brokerages out there that will make margin loan to its investors, and a margin loan is simply a loan that a brokerage makes to you, and that loan is secured by your investment assets. It's secured by your stocks and bonds. So if you can borrow against your assets for just a percent or less, why bother selling at all if the alternative is paying 28% in capital gains tax? Now, Elon Musk makes no bones about the fact that he borrows heavily against his Tesla stock. He doesn't sell his stock, so there's no capital gains tax. And loans are not considered income, so he doesn't owe income tax either. He simply pays a small interest rate on the loan. So now, politicians are talking about something called a wealth tax. A wealth tax is really just a tax on unrealized capital gains. 
Now, the Washington politicians have assured us that if a wealth tax passes, it will only affect billionaires. And as I'll talk about in the next couple segments with my guest today, Mr. Larry Reed, there's only about 740 billionaires that exist in the United States. And if we take their entire net worth, if we confiscate 100% of their assets, not their income, but their assets, we can run the government for about six months. So this wealth tax is really going to be a lot more symbolic, should it pass, than it will be, uh, than it will have any substance. Now, this past week, there was an article that was actually an op-ed put out by the editorial board at the Orange County Register, and it was talking about this very topic, the, the wealth tax. So they talk about how it works. So, so let's say that you bought stocks for $50,000 and they're now worth $100,000, but you don't want to sell them. Well, under this proposed wealth tax, that is initially anyway only for billionaires, the IRS would calculate the current value of the investment and tax you for the theoretical gain, in this example, $50,000. Many investors would likely have to sell the stocks to pay the tax assessment. Now, the editorial board at the Orange County Register says, imagine if the federal government could tax the unrealized gains of your home. Investments go up and down in value over the course of years, and investors often make decisions based on long-term calculations. And as Mr. Black points out in his article, this frustrates many politicians, so that's why they're talking about the wealth tax. Now, the wealth tax, despite the fact that it's being put out there as an idea that would only affect billionaires, will ultimately affect everyone, in my view. The income tax was put into law back in 1913 because it was only going to affect those who were very high earners. And yet today, look around, and even someone who works a part-time job has payroll taxes withheld from their paycheck. So that's how it starts, but that's not typically where it ends up. If you haven't yet done some tax planning, if you haven't taken a look at perhaps reducing the taxes on your IRA or 401k, I would encourage you to do that. When you request the book, Revenue Sourcing, I'll be glad to include some bonus information that will speak to that very topic. To get the Revenue Sourcing book and the bonus information, all you need to do is visit myrevenuesourcingbook.com. The website, again, is myrevenuesourcingbook.com. I'll be back after these words with my special guest, Mr. Larry Reed. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. I'm very pleased to have joining me once again on today's program, uh, Mr. Lawrence Reed. Uh, Larry is the President Emeritus of the Foundation of Economic Education. That website is fee.org. Larry is a prolific author. Uh, You can read uh, everything he publishes at his website, lawrencewreed.com. And uh, Reed is R-E-E-D. And Larry, welcome back to the program. Hey, my pleasure, Dennis. Thank you for having me. Well, Larry, let's jump in because uh, you were on the program almost a year ago now. And we talked about the policies of Woodrow Wilson. 
And I'm reminded of what my history professor said. Those who don't study history are doomed to repeat it. Uh, <laughs> can, you, can you enlighten the listeners a bit? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Well, for many, many years, Dennis, I regarded Woodrow Wilson personally as uh, the worst of our 46 presidents. And uh, I think that's still the case, but the current occupant of the White House is giving him a run for his money. Uh, Wilson, I think, was the worst for a lot of reasons. One, on a personal level, uh, he was a staunch racist. Uh, He segregated the entire federal government. Uh, Whatever wasn't already segregated, he took care of that, fired a lot of black people from the Postal Service and so forth, uh, simply because of their color. Uh, He also was a tax hiker. Uh, It was under him that we got the income tax in the first place. And he and his friends promised that if it was enacted there in 1913, that the top rate would never exceed 10%. Well, before his second term was over, he took it up to more than 70%. Uh, And he also uh, imposed all kinds of draconian uh, controls and mandates on the American economy during World War I, which he had promised to keep us out of. Um, he gave us um, uh, some other mischief, th- mischievous things, too. The 17th uh, Amendment, which is the direct election of senators, I think that undermined the uh, federalist arrangement between state and federal governments in our country and helped to consolidate power in Washington. And he was no friend of the Constitution. I mean, he actually said on more than one occasion that it was antiquated, it was aimed at an agrarian society, and we need to revamp it, which is... Uh, his way of saying we need to give the government a lot more power than it has. Well, and Larry, I think uh, Mr. Wilson was also responsible for signing the Federal Reserve Act into law, if that, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong. No, you're right, exactly, and that's another uh, (laughs) terrible sin uh, that he imposed on the country. Uh, The Federal Reserve, since its enactment uh, there in 1913, uh, has given us Uh, In spite of the promises to iron out the business cycle, it's given us uh, one Great Depression and nine or ten recessions and a currency that's worth uh, about a nickel of what it was when they started. It's been a complete disaster. So, Larry, I want to to, – you wrote an article recently uh, which really contrasted um, Wilson's – or his his successor, rather, um, uh, Mr. Warren Harding, uh, and I thought it was – uh, a really well done piece. Uh, can, can you comment a bit about the con- the contrast between Wilson and Harding? Yes, uh, Harding was from Ohio. Uh, he served in the U.S. Senate from Ohio and before that uh, in the state legislature and also as lieutenant governor of the state. And when he ran in 1920, uh, Wilson was completing his second term, of course, and that was very tumultuous for a lot of reasons. And Harding. Uh, ran on a platform of returning the country to normalcy. And that's exactly what he did. Uh, He's not rated very highly by conventional historians because of some scandals among some underlings of his. And he did make some uh, poor appointments, but he made some great ones too. Uh, But those scandals never personally touched him, uh, except for perhaps um, uh, the mistress or two that he had on the side. But um, in terms of his policies, he was so much better than Wilson. Um, He started the process that his successor, Calvin Coolidge, continued in the 1920s of bringing uh, tax rates down. 
And between Harding and Coolidge and their tax reductions in the 1920s, the top rate came down from over 70% uh, to the mid-20s. I mean, that's a remarkable reduction. He also, along with Coolidge, his successor, uh, brought down the national debt. Uh, and when we had a very sharp recession in 1921 because of the previous inflation of the uh, Wilson years, uh, Harding did the right thing. He didn't uh, throw a lot of federal money at the problem. He retrenched the federal government, brought down taxes and spending, and the result was a, a very short recession. The country got over it in less than a year, and recovery uh, was underway. So, And he was a very popular president in his day, maybe not among historians today, but among the American people of his day. They liked him. In your article uh, about President Harding, you talk about uh, a scene uh, from October of 1921. So as we're recording this, almost, almost exactly 100 years ago, and it was a speech that uh, President Harding gave in Birmingham, Alabama, and I yep. thought it was a terrific story. Can you relate that to the listeners? Oh, I'd be happy to. This is one of the things he should be best known for, but... Uh, so few people have any recollection of it or, ne or ever learned about it. But it was October 26, 1921, when President Harding went to Birmingham, Alabama. It was deeply Democratic, deeply Jim Crow in the Deep South. And he gave a spe spectacular address on racial equality. And uh, he said to the audience, I'm going to tell you, uh, candidly, what's on my mind, whether you like it or not. And the audience was about 30,000 in number, 20,000 whites and 10,000 blacks. And the whites were in the front and the blacks were segregated in the back. But when Harding finished, uh, the cheers all came from the back and the whites were quite silent. And the reason was he really leveled with that audience. He said, we've got to stop this business of having laws that discriminate against people because of their color. Uh, those laws at the time were uh, both federal and state, but primarily at the state level. And, uh, I mean, that was kind of revolutionary for a president to go right to the Deep South and say to people, you know, it's time to get over this race issue and uh, stop uh, this uh, Jim Crow stuff that says to black people, we're going to treat you under the law uh, differently and as second-class citizens from the way we treat everybody else. Well, and Larry, I think what's especially uh, noteworthy about this story is, you know, you have to understand the the climate at the time. I mean, uh, for, for those of our listeners that uh, maybe aren't history buffs or, or maybe, uh, you know, are younger and uh, uh, have never experienced uh, to the extent that, you know, there, there was race inequality in that day, um, that was a pretty bold thing for a president to step up and do. Oh, yeah. Uh, the country had just come through some pretty nasty racial riots, uh, and they weren't started by uh, uh, just blacks. In fact, many of them were started by whites against blacks. Uh, the, most uh, notably, the Tulsa race massacre of uh, June of 1921, just a few months before Harding's speech, in which several hundred blacks were killed. Um, I mean, it was a nasty time. The Ku Klux Klan was staging a resurgence in the 19-teens and 1920s. So it was uh, a message that uh, a president needed to deliver, and it was a message that people needed to hear. 
and he should get credit for uh, the great courage that he had to go down to the very deep south and tell people about racial equality. Well, if you're just joining me, I'm chatting with Mr. Larry Reed today. He is the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education, uh, a very worthy organization. I would encourage you to go check out their website at fee.org. I would also encourage you to consider supporting them. And uh, Larry, uh, if you could just explain a bit to the listeners that may not be familiar uh, what what the Foundation for Economic Education actually does and why it exists. Okay. Thank you, Dennis, for asking. The Foundation for Economic Education, which is now headquartered in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, after 70-some years in New York, we moved it a few years ago to Atlanta, Uh, Our purpose is to educate and inspire young people of high school and college age in ideas of individual liberty, free markets and free enterprise, and private property, limited government, and most importantly, personal character. And we do that through in-person and online events, our very robust website at fee.org, videos and curricula, you name it, it's all there on the website. Terrific. Well, again, I'd encourage the listeners to check it out. And Larry, we've got a couple minutes left in this segment. So if we could, I'd like to go back uh, because I think it's especially, uh, uh, it would be insightful to, to go back and take a look at this. Um, you, you mentioned that there were inflationary years at the end of Wilson's uh, administration in his second term. And, and Harding came in and uh, put policies in place that really corrected that. And and there seems to be a lot of parallels to that time and this time. Could you dig in just a little bit deeper and and explain what Wilson did that caused the inflation and maybe what Harding did that that helped bring it back under control? Okay. Well, part of the problem with Wilson that contributed to inflation was his spending. And it wasn't just for World War I, which for America began in 1917. Uh, He spent a lot for that, no question about it, but he also expanded uh, government at home. And so by uh, the second part of his administration, we were running deficits. The newly created Federal Reserve System was printing money. And one of the effects of all that uh, was for prices to rise. And uh, the rate of price inflation reached the low single, I mean, low double digits, uh, 12, 13 percent. And, you know, Americans hadn't seen that since the Civil War. So uh, they were pretty unhappy uh, with Wilson and his economic policies by the end of his uh, term. And he also imposed uh, selective price controls that created shortages, and it was a real mess. And Harding came in and said, we're getting rid of all that stuff. We don't want any – we don't want funny money flooding the country, nor do we want the federal government dictating what prices ought to be. We need to balance the budget, cut spending and taxes – and let a free economy and free people uh, go to town. And that's what he did. Well, the clock says we need to end it there. My guest today is Mr. Larry Reed. Uh, You can read his work at lawrencewreed.com. Reed is R-E-E-D, lawrencewreed.com. He is also the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. The website there is fee.org. I'll continue my conversation with Larry when RLA Radio returns. Stay with us. I'm Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to RLA Radio, and I have the pleasure of chatting once again today with Mr. Larry Reed. Uh, Larry is the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Uh, The website for uh, that is fee.org. That's fee.org. 
You can also read all of Larry's work at lawrencewreed.com. And Larry, um, I should probably preface this statement to by saying that uh, I am unapologetic and that capitalism is by far the best economic system ever known to man. And uh, I think I'm still in the majority, although some days I wonder. Um, you you recently wrote an article uh, quoting um, economist Todd, I believe the last name is pronounced Buchholz, uh, who said that economic illiteracy is dangerous. Um, if a country ignores basic economics, it could go bankrupt. And it seems that we're on that path. Yeah, it does. And it's very uh, disquieting to watch what's happening in Washington. It wasn't very long ago when anybody who came forth and said, hey, even though we have a trillion dollar uh, annual budget deficit now, let's spend three or four or five trillion more that we don't have. Uh, not very long ago, anybody saying that would be written off as uh, a lunatic. And yet uh, that's what's being discussed in Washington right now. Massive expansion of government spending and of the entitlement state, uh, state with uh, no thought, it seems, given to how is this going to be ultimately paid for. Now, they, they tell you that well, no, we got some stuff in the bill, some tax hikes and so forth that'll pay for it. But any economist worth his salt will tell you that at most they might get most of the money they need in the first year or two. But then thereafter, the bills are really going to be horrendous. And there's no provision in these massive spending bills to make sure those bills are covered. Larry, you hear uh, claims being made by those advancing these massive spending bills that the cost is really zero. We can spend three and a half trillion. The cost is zero. Um, comment on that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's it isn't a shame. In fact, that we even have to deal with such uh, a lunacy. Three and a half trillion dollars is three and a half trillion dollars. It's not zero. And what they're trying to say is they're playing the class warfare card again. They're basically saying, well, we won't get it from you. We're just going to get it from those nasty billionaires of which there are only 700 in the United States. And by the way, if you took every penny that those 700 billionaires in America have, not just their income from whatever form in any given year, but everything they have, their entire wealth, that is estimated to be about $4 trillion. You could take everything they have, put them in the poorhouse, and you'd cover the federal government uh, for uh, considerably less than a year. And then you'd never get anything again from them because now they'd be in the poorhouse. So uh, it's, it's just absolutely ridiculous. It's class warfare. Uh, the purpose here is to put uh, progressives in a position of power over you and over me and then uh, uh, make as many people as possible dependent upon uh, their beneficence at the federal, federal level, even if it bank bankrupts the country in the process. Well, Larry, uh, you know, the inflation genie is definitely out of the bottle here. And, and a lot of this uh, th this deficit spending has, you know, been funded by currency creation uh, at reckless levels, in my view, by the, by the Federal Reserve. Um, and it seems that, you know, ultimately there is nothing that's free. It's this, we're really seeing everyday Americans now getting pinched by an inflation tax. Yeah, we sure are. In fact, we're beginning this, to see something that looks like uh, the mid to late 70s, uh, the period of stagflation, where you have very slow, if any, economic growth. At the same time, prices are beginning to take off. 
we're seeing signs of that right now with uh, uh, not yet a contraction in the economy, but much slower growth than we saw uh, just a few months ago. And at the same time, inflation is running at uh, two or three times what it was uh, as recently as a year ago. So uh, that's that's very dangerous. But I think that uh, uh, the chickens are coming home to roost, uh, Dennis. We're beginning to see a lot of this uh, funny money that the Fed has been uh, pushing into the system, it's now finally um, uh, working its way into ever higher prices. And, and it's exacerbated by supply bottlenecks, COVID mandates, and, and other uh, interventions of the government. But the funny money alone, uh, which has increased by some 35% in the last year and a half, is it's certainly enough to create lots of price pressures, and we're seeing it every day. So, Larry, you know, from some of the uh, other people I've interviewed, uh, it, it seems that there's consensus that there is a, a lag, a time lag from the time that currency is created and you actually see the inflationary effects. And assuming that is the case, and I'd like your, your viewpoint on that, uh, it seems that, uh, you know, this inflation may just be getting started. What's your take? Oh, I think that's true, uh, Dennis. The time lag does seem, if, if you look back at history, to vary considerably. There are a lot of us uh, economists who thought that we would see these price pressures sooner than we have after so many years of uh, uh, the Federal Reserve expending uh, money and credit so dramatically. Uh, but there were other forces in the market uh, uh, at, at the time that sort of suppressed the price effects of that earlier, earlier money creation, things like... Um, the regulation of the Obama years that kept a lid on prices and the economy and so forth. But now the lid's coming off of everything. You've got uh, um, uh, COVID mandates now uh, hopefully fading out. Uh, you've got the economy trying to uh, grow and reassert itself. You've got um, uh, uh, that newly created money that used to sit in the banks is now working its way into the spending stream. Uh, and uh, inevitably that pushes prices up. So, I am afraid that we're going to see over the next uh, six, eight months uh, inflation perhaps even double again from the present uh, 5 to 6 percent to maybe 10 to 12 percent. Larry, you uh, uh, you know when you when you look at uh, the, the, some of the, uh, the the government programs that have been uh, put forth here over the past year and a half, um, you know we've really rewarded people for not working to a certain extent not that there weren't you know reasons to uh, provide stimulus that's that's not what i intend to say but it seems that now maybe we have created a mindset that is really stagnating economic growth to what to what extent would you agree with that oh i do agree with that dennis and uh there are a lot of um, corners of the country i would fault for that uh, i would fault uh, to some degree parents who aren't uh, teaching any uh, solid economics to their youngsters at home. I would fault uh, even more so the uh, uh, public schools in most parts of the country that uh, are producing uh, uh, young people out of high school who haven't the, uh, 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 the slightest clue of what makes an economy run. You see polls indicating that... Uh, uh, a plurality, if not majority, of young people these days coming out of high school uh, have favorable views of socialism. Well, that tells me that uh, they've been indoctrinated. They've not, they've not been told the other side, either by their parents or by uh, uh, the schools that are supposed to educate them. Uh, so, um, yeah, you can't have economic 
nonsense being taught, and then uh, people with that lack of knowledge going into high places and and not expect there to be uh, uh, bad policies resulting from it. And uh, hopefully we can turn that around. So, Larry, given that we have you know massive deficits as far as the eye can see, we've got currency creation taking place at a at a maniacal pace, as we just mentioned. Um, what is the capitalist solution to where we find ourselves today, in your view? Well, the capitalist sol- solution, I would say, is to get rid of the socialism that we increasingly have, and by that I mean the uh, uh, this ever increasing. Uh, growth in the entitlement state that pays people to be idle, uh, the uh, ever-increasing regulatory apparatus that stifles everything from the uh, creation of energy that fuels the economy uh, to the, to the uh, formation of small businesses. Uh, the capitalist solution would also suggest that uh, we uh, educate people to understand that capitalism is infinitely superior to any of the other isms for a lot of reasons. One, it tends to give people, productive people, the greatest incentive to produce. Uh, It um, is most in accord with human nature because it says to people, if you do no harm to others, go to town, be productive, uh, get rich if you can, serve others in the process, and you'll find that that's the way you can get ahead yourself. I think capitalism is, uh, really, it follows from human nature. That's why you don't need a king or a queen uh, to decree it. Uh, they don't need it. They don't need to plan it. All they need to do is to get out of people's way. Whereas all these other isms, like socialism, is really just a bunch of uh, people who think they're smarter than others, uh, sitting down and, and mapping out plans to push other people around. Capitalism just says, go to town, invent, create, uh, and be productive. Be yourselves. And you'll be rewarded in the marketplace for the risks you take if you make good judgments. So, Larry, in your view, are we too far down the road towards socialism to to ever correct this? Uh, are you optimistic or are you becoming more pessimistic? No, I'm still very optimistic. I can think of many places in recent times, uh, Dennis, where Countries have gone even further down this path than we have and turned around. I mean, look at uh, most of Eastern Europe. They were uh, part of the old Soviet empire with thoroughly socialized uh, economies uh, in the uh, years that communism dominated uh, from Moscow. You also had Great Britain in the uh, 30 years after World War II that went uh, the so-called democratic socialist uh, direction, and they ended up as the basket case of Europe until Margaret Thatcher came along and uh, really saved Britain and turned things around. So, you know, sometimes it takes uh, real crises before people wake up and support the kinds of policies that can make a difference. And that's what I'm hoping for here. Not the crisis part, but the waking up part, I think uh, uh, that's what I'm wishing for. And I think I see signs of it already. Yeah, I certainly agree with you. My guest today has been Mr. Larry Reed. He is the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Uh, Great organization. Check out their website at fee.org, and you can read all of Larry's work at lawrencewreed.com. Larry, always a pleasure to catch up with you. Very much appreciate your time. I know you travel a lot, so appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to uh, spend some time with me and my listeners. Hey, my pleasure, Dennis. Thank you so much. We will return after these words. I'm Dennis Tuberg, and you're listening to RLA Radio. 
And thanks again to my special guest today, Mr. Larry Reed, for joining us. If you're just joining me, I'm offering uh, today a copy, a free copy of the book that was released in spring of 2020 titled Revenue Sourcing, and it contains retirement planning strategies and money management strategies for the economy in which we find ourselves. If you'd like to get a free copy of the book as well as some bonus information, just go to the website, myrevenuesourcingbook.com. The website, again, myrevenuesourcingbook.com. Let us know where to mail the book, and we will be glad to do that. I was reading an article this past week by Mr. Egon von Greyerts. Uh, Mr. von Greyerts is uh, the founder of Matterhorn Capital Management. And he made a very interesting point about where we find ourselves. And it really validates my opinion that we are in an economy that is largely artificial. And I think that extends to not only interest rates, to currencies, to stocks and real estate, but but also the entire economy. Mr. Von Greyerts makes the point that in 1981, interest rates peaked. And since that time, for really the last 40 years, interest rates have dropped from 20% to 0%. Now, if you think about how interest rates would operate in a free economy, that alone is a pretty profound statement. See, when interest rates are high, people are less likely, businesses are less likely to go out and borrow money. The cost to get money, the cost to service debt, is very high when interest rates are 20%, like they were back in 1981. However, as interest rates decline, more people are willing to borrow money. And if interest rates drop to zero, the laws of supply and demand would have one assuming that nobody wants to borrow money. I mean, if you're a lender, if you're a banker, if people are borrowing money at 10%, at 15%, or at some high interest rate, you have no reason to drop interest rates. On the other hand, if interest rates are, are, are falling, what it indicates is that fewer people are willing to borrow. So as interest rates decline, one would expect that debt, following the laws of supply and demand, would also decline. But that's not what has happened. Debt has grown exponentially, and that growth of debt has not put any upside pressure on rates. Why is that? Well, because central banks and commercial banks have created lots of currency, lots of credit, if you will, out of thin air. In our fractionalized banking system, banks can lend the same money out 10 times, 20 times over. And central banks can print infinite amounts of currency. Now, global debt in 1981 was $14 trillion. Today, global debt is pushing $300 trillion. So, Global debt has gone up about 20 times over the last 40 years, and yet the cost of debt has gone from 20% to 0%. That's not normal, and this conclusively proves that this is an artificial situation. 
Now, to make this even crazier, many central banks around the world have in introduced negative rates, and we've been talking about this here on the program for quite some time. So that adds to the fact that this is a really artificial situation. Mr. Von Greyerd says this, Negative rates are not just a total paradox, but also absolute lunacy. Bankrupt nations around the world have been issuing debt at no cost or have even been paid for it. The whole purpose of interest is to be paid for the risk of lending money. As governments around the world have issued virtually unlimited debt, which will never be repaid, the risk of lending to them has increased exponentially, but instead of much higher rates to reflect the massive increase in debt, plus severely elevated risk, central banks have gotten away with defying the laws of nature by manipulating rates. So the cost of money today, Mr. Von Greyerts concludes, doesn't reflect the risk or the demand. What it represents is manipulation or a fake market, or as I like to say, it's an artificial market. And this will have to end, and when it ends, it will likely end, as Mr. Von Greyerts says, catastrophically. He said, very soon we'll see debt around the world come under enormous pressure as borrowers start defaulting. This will, leads to bond, this will lead to bonds crashing and rates surging. This past week, the short-term Australian bond saw interest rates spike when the central bank didn't participate in the bond auction. There will be more of that to come. Now, Mr. Von Greyer says, look, could my forecast be wrong? And he says, of course it could, but he makes a very good point. The rehearsal of his forecast took place in 2006 to 2009. You know, after the financial crisis, that's when currency creation began in earnest, and it's just accelerated since then. Debt has increased since that time. Nothing was resolved at the time of the financial crisis. As Mr. Von Greyerd says, it was just temporarily deferred. And he believes, as do I, that the bankers probably cannot pull another trick out of their hat again because the only one they have left is to create more currency. And that does not solve a debt problem. And debt is the fundamental problem and why currency is created in the first place. Now, I expect that we will see a repricing of assets moving ahead. I've often quoted Thomas Jefferson here on the program who said that if the American people ever allow private bankers to control the issue of their currency, which is exactly what we are doing presently, that we'll see inflation followed by deflation. Well, we are seeing inflation now. There is no denying that. How much more intense inflation will become, no one knows for sure, but I look for it to continue to increase before the deflationary reset that Mr. Von Greyerts is talking about kicks in. I'd like to invite you to get more information about how to potentially protect yourself from what's coming. My revenue sourcing book is being made available. All you need to do to get a copy of the book is visit the website, myrevenuesourcingbook.com. The website, again, myrevenuesourcingbook.com. When you go to the website, just let us know where to mail the book, and we'll be very glad to do that. 
also includes some bonus information that may help you reduce the taxes on your IRA or 401k. So again, the website, myrevenuesourcingbook.com, myrevenuesourcingbook.com. That's my program for this week. Hope you got something you can use, and I'll be back again next week.